Thanks for tuning in to Perspectives YYC. Today we speak to Sarah Schmidt, a personal stylist, coming from the marketing world, having a corporate job, coming out of Saskatchewan. Her story is a fascinating one, teaching me about the spiritual connection between looking for what it is that we need to be doing and dressing accordingly. I hope you enjoy it, and if you can, give us a follow, a subscription, some comments, a rating, some feedback. Uh, just tell us what you think of what we're doing so far. And otherwise, please enjoy this episode, and uh, we'll chat with you soon. I try to say nice things too, but um, I think I've told them each to fuck off in jest uh, every time I meet them. Can you elaborate on why asshole now and not previously? Oh, like, no, I was, were you like a always. super nice guy no, 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 previous no. to this? I was uh, previous <laughs> to this. I was just an asshole. We're recording all this. It was great. So today <laughs> I've got Sarah with me. Um, what I normally like to do is ask how we met uh, so that we can get some context of why we're here. Uh, so how did we meet? Oh, I know. I know now. The internet. We yeah. love the internet. Instagram specifically. Doing my usual cruising through the feeds. And I came across an open call for perspectives. So then I was like, what's perspectives? I looked into that and saw that it was a magazine for artists to showcase what's going on here. So then I clicked into it and then I just, I think I just DM'd you and you were like, yeah, let's meet for coffee. At, where's your office again? Yeah, Phil and Sebby's, yeah. Phil and Sebastian's in Mission. Yeah. So, so we met for coffee and then as soon as I got there, I don't know, a few days, a week later, whatever that was, I recognized Helen was sitting there and I just met Helen not too long before that at a talk about sustainability and fashion. She was on a panel. So then I thought that was kind of funny. It was like, oh, hi, Helen. Nice. To, oh, I'm meeting somebody, but I'd like to chat. And she's, she's like, you're meeting David. I'm like, oh, oh, oh okay. So it was like a, a nice little bonus. I feel like that first meeting, you spent more time talking to Helen than to me. <laughs> <gasps> no, that's not true. But at the beginning, you guys really vibed. And I thought that was really funny, too. You came in and Helen's like, I know that woman. And you're like, hi. And she's like, you're meeting her? You're meeting her. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The open call, you did respond and yeah. you wrote me an article and it's in issue two. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what we did is we sat down and we talked about a lot of things. Um, but some of the things we're talking about, um, what I saw or what I thought might be interesting from a visual standpoint in the fashion scene. And then we had, we had jammed on a couple different ideas and I don't know how it came about it, but I think I told you that story about when I was a little kid, I, I, I always really loved dress up but I love dress up watching other people dress up. And in this particular story, it was my grandparents when they would go out for their Saturday night dance at Crooked Lake in Saskatchewan. I don't actually know for how long they did that, 
But because you're a kid and your memories, they're just there, I suppose, when you're little. I don't know when, I don't have like a before memories or after memories, but that was, that started very young in my brain. And um, it's it's just seared in there for sure. I love that article. I loved um, all of it. I mean, you know, as crazy as, not crazy, you know, as interesting is, um, yeah, you came out, you're a personal stylist, you used to work in advertising, et cetera. But uh, the story is, I, at least what I vibe with is, um, you know, your grandparents taking that time to just be together, to dress up, to do something cool, to enjoy themselves. And that by you witnessing it, it seems to have influenced your decision ultimately to take this pursuit and to be interested in the same kind of thing. Uh, I think it's beautiful. I don't know. That's oh, my that's take so on nice. it. That's so nice. Um, it's when I finally decided to do styling kind of full time. It was, you know, have you seen that commercial, like, should have had a V8? Was it like, should have had a V8? When I decided that perhaps I should pursue a consultancy in fashion and styling, I'm like, uh-huh. So, you know, so they could go somewhere. And when I remember distinctly as a kid thinking about my careers, this is like grade six, and there was an assignment, and you're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I, I wanted to be, at first I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, and then um, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And then the veterinarian, once I realized that animals pass away, uh, hard pass, couldn't do that. So then I went back to lawyer. And um, when I dug into it, I just liked the suits. I <laughs> liked what they wore in the courtroom. Yeah. And like that was like pre Ally McBeal. So then when those shows came up, I was like, oh. And then I realized you had to be a certain type of person to be a lawyer. So it was always about the clothes. And then I grew up in a house. My mom um, worked out of the home and she's a seamstress. So she was always fixing people's clothes. And depending on the client, sometimes I could sneak in and watch. It was always there, but it wasn't as clear as until, you know, I had my V8. Let's talk about, I mean, the two things in my mind are uh, immediately. Uh, one is, yeah, this influence of how your family is always around the idea of fashion, clothing, appearance and apparel. And the other is sort of this evolution of what did you end up doing uh, before your V8 moment? Um, hmm. You know, so where did your actual life take you first? And then was there a specific situation or something that changed drastically that you decided to just go all in and, and do something else? Uh, I mean, it's pretty vague, but yeah. I know very little. So yeah, uh, maybe well, that's could... funny. I think my 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 family, all of it, all sides of it. I come from a huge um, farming family in Saskatchewan. They would laugh if we were known for like looking a certain way, but because we don't. They're very hardworking people, but they care more about family and surrounding themselves with each other than, you know, ever putting on like clothing or something like that. Clothing for them is mostly a necessity. So I think because of that, when they would dress up, and I'd see how they would carry themselves, whether it was like for a family wedding, even like a funeral or, or you know, going dancing Saturday night. That's when I was like, oh, oh. So then how did I get here? Oh, my. So the, the short-ish story was I knew I wanted to go to university. And I had the total luxury in that my parents had no money for me to go away to school and they didn't go to school themselves. Really, it was um, me and my cousins and siblings. That was kind of the first generation for going away to school, any kind of school, post high school. So I had the luxury of just doing whatever because my parents, they could they didn't have the money to help me out, but they encouraged me to do whatever I wanted. So I had I had zero pressure, which was a gift 
in some in some things because I did it for me and I did it for myself and I put myself through school. And at the other side, sometimes I think, well, maybe I would have got here sooner if they would have judged me along, but nah, how could you ever know? So I knew I wanted to go to school, but no idea what I wanted to do. So like, I didn't make much progress since grade six, jumping around based on what had the best outfits. Uh, but I settled on wanting to study business. So I came to Haskane School of Business. Um, and the reason I chose business is I thought, okay, if I study something like marketing, where you can get to know how to sell things to people or what people want and how to communicate to them, I'm going to learn something. And then hopefully along the way, it's going to, you know, pique my interest in something else. And then I'll do that. So it was kind of like a gateway. So then I, um, have you ever seen the movie, even though Mel Gibson, what a terrible, terrible human, uh, what women want, Yep. you know, when he's, he actually can hear women and he's putting on the pantyhose and trying all the products because he actually has the female experience. I loved, I love, love, love that scene that he actually could look into it. And that's the last time he's considered another human in his entire life. But, uh, and then the other movie was How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Yep. You know how they're kind of like in the advertising agency. So and they're trying to they're yeah. trying to sell diamonds, right? So like the frost yourself thing. Oh, Matthew McConaughey. Matthew yeah. McConaughey and, and a couple uh, other what's her name? Kate Hudson. Character, yeah, yeah, character actors. They're trying to figure out how they're going to win this pitch. With Not this. that I watch romantic comedies. Uh, I'm too cool for that. No, I know all of them. No, Continue. okay, good. Yeah. But there was that scene where they were trying to figure out what would motivate the client and what's mm -hmm. the actual need or when it is that like this luxury good. Obviously, diamonds. It's such a luxury out of this world thing, how do you resonate with that? So that's how I picked advertising. So the goal was get myself through school, get myself into an agency, any agency that would hire me and just start. And then I figured by um, exposing myself to a bunch of different clients and industries and businesses, there would be something that interests me. So I did that. I got my start, which yes. was fantastic. Here in Calgary? Or? Here, okay. here, here in Calgary. So I worked for a couple different agencies and had incredible experiences. I just kept um, saying I wanted to do more and they just kept letting me, which was crazy considering how young and inexperienced I was. But so, so, so thankful. It was so foundational for me. I wouldn't take those years back for anything. And then there came a point where I looked around the room and I couldn't see my future anymore. So that was the first time in about almost 10 years after I decided to go away to university and work that I, I didn't see my future. So I let myself go. So I walked away and took a little bit of time um, and then landed in the nonprofit world because I'd never done that. I'd been on the agency side where you serve a bunch of different clients, whatever their business was, but I had never represented one client and all their marketing needs. So I did that for a while. And then uh, the oil and gas industry hit bottom again. So um, the trickle down effect is about 12 to 18 months. And it hit. And uh, obviously, marketing departments are one of the first to go in uh, businesses. So I was let go. So then that was my kind of, hey, you're doing this full time now. I had been incorporated and I had set it up, but I'd been doing it mostly on the side. So this is the fashion side already? Yeah, I've okay. been doing my fashion consultancy on the side for a little bit. But then when I was let go, I decided, hey, I'm probably never going to have this chance to to do this in my life in this particular set of circumstances. I have a super supportive partner. We don't have children. So I had time and a little bit of a security blanket. And I know like most entrepreneurs, they don't even have that. So I feel so incredibly fortunate. I'm still scared, I'm scared every day. It's just one less thing, one less challenge that I'm just so fortunate to have. So that's, that's the long winded thing. Saskatchewan, 
university, advertising, styling part-time to styling full-time. So uh, if we <laughs> if we jump back a little bit, sure. uh, what what is a styling consultancy and what are you doing part-time while you're doing marketing? The one sort of outside thought I had, I have a, a good friend in Toronto um, who now I think is politics, but when he graduated whatever, his second or third degree, he joined a marketing company in Toronto. He said uh, it was insane. Like it's just high energy, uh, long hours, crazy, like deadlines. Like, you, you know, the money's there, but it's just this crazy year before he ended up in government. But what is that the same in Calgary? Like, how, what are you doing part-time? Like, what, what is yeah. your sort of day-to-day that you're able to do something else and then kind of flip over there? For my experience, it was, I was at a small firm, uh, locally owned, and I thought it was, it was so, so, so fast-paced. But like, keep in mind, I was like 22 when I started and I was, I wanted to sponge as much as I could. Like, I didn't even want to reflect on the experiences because I just needed to gather them. Like, typical millennial me. Like, I just wanted to be exposed to as many different things. And then at some point, realize that later I would look back and go, okay, what was that for me personally? So I wanted the long hours. I worked like the 60, 70 hour work weeks. I was one of the first ones there, last ones to go. If somebody had to stay because of a client project that I was... A part of I would stay so part of that was just being a good human I didn't want to leave like a graphic designer while they were working on something that I needed to send out that just didn't feel good to me and like I really liked it I did my family like I said it, it comes from an agricultural background so I, I have richness so much richness there but because they they focused their lives and generations before that on that um, I didn't know really anything about the professional community especially especially not Calgary so I was just so curious and wanted to try. And then where did I find the time? Once I kind of had my my moment of clarity, uh, it just came over me that I, I just did it. So I did it on my lunch hours. I would do it every evening, all weekend. I would figure it out. And lucky for me, um, clients oftentimes can only go evenings and weekends because they too are working. So in terms of client time, that was, that was fine. And um, my development time, I just, I just did it in my spare time. Uh, like maybe we could focus on the idea of like, what is it? Like, what is it what that you're doing? Yeah, yeah. Like what is, what is fashion consultancy? What are okay. you doing? Sure. Um, I'm not sure. Cause I know we'll get to it. Cause I'm curious about your whole, your whole thing. Cause I've heard a little bit about it, but um, want to chat more about it. But I just think that life is just so, so short. We get such few moments. I want people to feel good and I want them to look fabulous. So your version of that is going to be different than mine. What I can bring to the table is I spend a lot of time figuring out who the person is. So that way we can figure out a style that actually reflects them. So even though, you know, the magazines or the listicles say you should have these five pieces, maybe, maybe not. Uh, depends who you are and are, are you going to be fully expressed in those pieces so some people love a blazer most people hate them right and some people some people want to wear um, jeans and other people don't want to wear them at all I think the difference for me is that I find clothes that make you feel good that fit you not even not just your body type and your coloring and your profession to make sure that it's accurate for the tone of work that you do or how you want to put yourself out there but you feel good in them because there's no point in putting something on and then be futzing with it all day and that occupying your mind and your space and you walking around feeling uncomfortable. That's just so 
so sad and such a, a wasted opportunity. And the thing that's fun is like at the end of the day, say you do try something that's maybe out of your comfort zone, you get home, you take it off. You know, it's not a tattoo. It's not, you know, it's not cutting your hair a certain way. If, uh, if perhaps you, you make a mistake or don't feel good in their clothing, then you're learning something from it and you can figure it out. So what I like to do with my clients is go through that process with them, trying to understand what they need out of this life and how they want to be seen and how they see themselves. And then aligning what's going on, all that inside stuff and simplify it. So that way it just translates on the outside. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's a little nebulous. No, no, no. I think like from a philosophical sense, um, from a spiritual, from a conceptual thing that makes sense. What is that moment where you decide that you can help other people? Like, you know, we've talked about the idea of a client. So um, did you advertise it? Did you start with a friend? Was it somebody that was coming to work uh, super drab? And you're like, fuck, man, like, <laughs> just put this put this on because like, you'll feel better if you were, you know, this type. Like, is there a... A specific moment is there a specific relationship that happened early on that created this idea that this in, not only could be a viable business but that it translated into you had something that you could share with someone else uh, because i think i feel like that moment is where a lot of people get hung up sure um, because most people talk themselves out of that moment mm. um, is there something like that where yeah like i had some glimmers so it's kind of funny looking back right whenever you look back you go oh so I was the kid that was ripping ads out of magazines and plastering the walls. Um, I was always looking at fashion magazines and runway. Um, I was always trying to rejig pieces terribly, terribly. My mother, she would just be in dread with what I would kind of do as hack jobs to kind of make things my own. Um, so, so clothing has always been a tool for my self-expression. And then I had the fortune of, because I worked in advertising, we would do commercial shoots and we would do video shoots. And uh, oftentimes there would be budget to hire a costume person. So I knew that there was a job for that. I knew it was challenging because, you know, you get to t chatting with people on set in the different departments. So I knew that there was a role there. And I certainly knew from, you know, gossip magazines and celebrity culture that there was a role for a celebrity stylist. So my brain just kind of took the leap and said, well, there's got to be people you know that have whatever jobs that they have in the in the public whether they're newscasters or something like that they have to select their clothes there must be a market for it so i just went and did market research and found out yeah there are a ton of stylists in this city not everybody's doing the exact same thing and everybody serves different people which is great so you know if i'm not the person that's a good fit for you there's two or three other great people in the city that i can i'd be happy to pass along to you so quickly I realized that it was a thing, like that thing existed out there. And then it was, do I have the ovaries to do this? You know, can I just, just try it? Because I, um, I love the expression. I don't even know who said it. Um, I always used to say it to like my friends when they were trying to figure out if they should ask somebody out. I said, well, wouldn't you rather have that person say no to you than you say no to you and not no? I would rather have the world say no to me than me say no to me. I just kind of foolishly did it. And because I, you know, started as a consultancy and at the time I was working, there was very little pressure outside of the pressure I put on myself. Uh, first of all, ovaries, well played. Uh, yeah. Second of all, um, you know, it's interesting when you brought up, I mean, you have this childhood fashion, uh, fascination with fashion, uh, the articles about your grandparents, you talk about your mother being a seamstress. And then when you talked about going to university, you chose business and marketing because you considered it a gateway. 
And then working in it, that gateway became you connecting your love of clothes into a business. To- totally. Yeah, it's fascinating. Totally. And like, excuse the the pun, but it's like, like you can see the thread. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's hilarious for me to look back and go, oh, yeah, of course. You so when I told my friends and family that I was starting up this consultancy, it was like a shoulder shrug because they're like, yeah, of course. Or like, you know, the uncle saying, oh, yeah, you should have done that sooner, <laughs> you know, or um, men. <laughs> Just some, some men, some men. So yeah, it it was always there, but it wasn't, it wasn't right there until. We got to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise it's too easy. Well, and I think that agency stuff really helped me understand how, you know, the process of talking to someone and then many, many months, maybe years later, turning that into a business relationship and then walking that person through, through the process, right? And not everybody you meet is going to be your client. And that's great. But those that do, th- how long it takes and the steps, the bare minimum steps there are, I did not have any access to that pre, pre-career. pre So really, uh, my time at agencies gave me that exposure and oh, gave crucial. me that insight. It was, it was insane. So project managing for somebody else helped me figure out how I might change. I've revised it a bunch of times. Project manage myself, right? And and what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it and how I wanted the customer to feel during the process. Yeah, I mean, I've often maybe mischaracterized this as a disease of millennials or young people, but I think it's human nature. Where... You're, you're, you're just outside a millennial, for the record. Am I? Yeah. 41? Oh, so yeah, well. it's not, what I've read is it's loosely 1980 to 2000, 1999. Birth years, but really, really, the bulk of it is 1981ers, 1981ers to 1996ers. So, are you just just outside that? 78. Okay. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Millennial. Yeah, because I had a friend one time, a dog and millennials on Twitter, and I said, "Buddy, we're the same age. Like we're millennials." Helen, you're a millennial, apparently. Oh shit! Kyle just gave me a signal. He's a millennial. Fuck, that's crazy. You're outnumbered now. This is why I'm so much wiser than everybody. I, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I was just thinking, um, so I was blaming this on, on youth, for example. Uh, this Tell me. entitlement. This idea that, like, so for example, my son, who's turning five, thinks that he's 40. We believe that once we start something, we're supposed to get the immediate uh, feedback. So if you start your own business, you're like, why the fuck am I not already a millionaire? Like, totally. I start Instagram, like, where's my 10K followers? I want to swipe up. And like, y- y- it takes time. It takes effort. You have to do all this weird stuff that I hate. You know, like we were just chatting in the pre-chat about how I'm, you know, web illiterate. Hmm. Uh, but I look at my analytics every day and I wonder why nobody's tagging me. But do I know anything about SEO or tagging? I don't know shit. You know, I, I tried to use the templates and and they don't work. Not in that sense, not in a aggressive growth sense. Um, but even now, like my wife's doing really well, uh, sparked her with Helen. Um, but, <laughs> but like she puts a lot of work into it. You know, she lives on a computer. Maybe because she's a millennial. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up uh, on the generational thing is uh, she grew up with a functional computer in her hand or on her phone or on a, on a desk, you know, in her entire life. Um my sister is seven years younger than me, is more so. And then these kids, uh, you know, the ones that are, okay, fuck, there's kids that are born. Like my son's 2014. It's, it's hard to comprehend. Uh, yeah. But 
you know, my brother and I and people who are older than me, of course, um, we had a time when there wasn't a computer in the house. We had a time where, you know, this, that, and not to be too much Clint Eastwood and Gran Torino and telling everyone to go fuck themselves. It's like more just, it's not as natural, right? Like I go on a computer and if I'm not doing something functional, I kind of turn it off. But my wife can be on a computer all day. And when I look over, she's learned information from this country and this other things happen. And these people are, I'm like, I don't understand hmm. any of that. I don't know how to use it as a, as that kind of social tool. So um, I, I know I don't speak for everybody who's my age. I'm sure there's smarter people than me who figured it out earlier, but. Yeah, and I think <laughs> um, it's important to remind yourself, like my brother's in 1981 and he would resonate with your technical group mm -hmm. more than a millennial. Like he couldn't be farther from it in terms of values and habits and behaviors and maybe learned, because it's all learned behavior, right? But I think the one thing that to keep in mind with millennials and when we're talking about that, I guess the stereotypical thing is we were brought up in a time when our parents, for the most part, both of them were working. And that was the first generation that was doing that. We had a bunch of women saying that I can be and do everything. So they were working 40 hours a week plus 40 hours domestically. Men, not so much because the women were, were doing it all. And um, the first time that you became ultra invested in your child and, and realizing that privileges exist in the world, I don't think they understood it. Um, they couldn't speak about it. And, you know, people can't speak about it now, inherent privilege. But I think our generation was the first to really be that. We did get instant gratification because we had really invested parents in us in school systems that knew that school mattered and that, oh yeah, you have to go and do these extracurriculars to pad your resume, to go to school. So that way you can have the career you want. So we were raised to believe in that, you know, to believe in that. And I think for every, you know, entitled person, I think they're entitled for the opportunity because they were told that that was going to be there. So then when 2008 hit, and all of those jobs that our parents told us were going to be there because you went to school, because you did these things, they weren't. They got wiped out. So then naturally, the pool got huge. For all of the people that went into the pool, you had people that were way more senior than us with more ex in terms of experience competing for the same entry-level jobs that we couldn't get. I'm an anomaly. I got a job. Like, holy smokes, I just, like, edged that out. I'm so, so grateful. That timing worked in my favor. But I can see how things would have been different if I'm competing against somebody that had 10, 15 years experience. And especially in this city, where you're told that you can come to Calgary and be anything and do anything. It's such a young, spirited, entrepreneurial city. And that's what's great about it is people flock here from all over, which is rad. Like, that's what I did. But yeah, it's kind of like that double-edged sword. Come here for opportunity, but there may not be as much as you think. And you know, what do people do when they're disappointed? They complain. When we first got here from, from Toronto, of course, Toronto. Um, I love Toronto. I don't. Um, oh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, you know, one of the things that we started noticing is it felt like everybody we knew or met or had, you know, some... Everybody talked about how they had at some point or were going to start a business on their own, whether they were at that point employees of something else or incorporate out of corporate, had a successful business or not. And now that Helen and I are 
building our own businesses, essentially. One of the things I'm kind of wondering is, uh, is this culture of entitlement, like you're talking about, whether it's positive or negative, where people give up too early and uh, aren't really willing uh, or able to last in the suffering phases at the beginning, because there's no money to be, I mean, there's some people that are lotto winners and They'll pitch a business and something happened. I presumably, I, I don't even know if that's true, but um, well, that's an interesting perspective. Like you know, this oil crash, and I, we don't understand any of that because it's yeah. not the culture we grew up in. So, so uh, yeah, and we were sold. I kind of always say that we were sold this promise that if you work hard and if you show up and you get your degree, a job will be there waiting for it, and then all you have to do is work hard and you can mm-hmm. keep it. And then, of course, of course, that didn't happen. Meanwhile, our parents are breaking up. They're gaining weight. They're miserable. So this whole life that they sold us is kind of looking a little jaded now mm-hmm. that we're adults and we realize, oh, they were just doing their best. They were really just trying, but turns out they're human too. So I think kind of the bubble of uh, stylized family life, that whole idea kind of got blown up. Yeah. Career longevity and trajectory, that whole idea got blown up. And then we're sitting here going, okay, well, I need something real. So I need experiences or I need, I want to feel good for me. So that's why there's the self-care. That's why I think people are really invested in expressing who they are as an individual or trying to get there at least, which I'm, of course, I'm on board with. That's, that's my work. I want people to be fully expressed. But I think there's reasons why that happened. You know, we grew up with the Enron scandals and we grew up with governments being distrustworthy. So our whole kind of thing is... Jaded. I don't want to say jaded, but we had to start thinking about things a little bit more critically than we ever had because the people that were supposed to be trustworthy in some cases weren't. So kind of cracked a whole veneer in this whole stylized, idealized life. I'd go jaded and say, you know, all authority figures are, are corrupt. Ah, <laughs> um, but what about would you say that to your son about yourself? Yeah, I like I'm not uh, I'm not dishonest with him about where I come from and what even when he gets older and he asks me all this stuff, you know, have you ever drank, have you ever done drugs, have you ever done this, have you ever lied? Of course I have. I've done yeah. all those things. Yeah. Um I went to lunch with my uh producer Kyle Marshall and he oh, he's smiling. Hey Kyle. And uh, <laughs> he brought up an interesting uh concept which is, I think he said he heard on a podcast, I'm going to attribute it to Kyle because he, he's, uh, he's a genius, is um, this idea that maybe the concept of counterculture now is actually being nice and being totally. developer and having character. That movement away from the 90s era of these ultra-billion and trillionaires, and then all of a sudden it turns out they're all doing awful things to other people or taking advantage of this or that or dumping shit in the seas yeah. or yeah, whatever yeah. it is. Everybody's yeah. uh, done something wrong. And now it feels like a lot of, whether it's just kids, but like everybody is more, it's cooler to hug people. It's cooler to tell people With you permission. Love them. With permission. With permission. Uh, yeah. Expressed not, consent. Not the patriarchal hugging, uh, but, you know, like kind of um, wanting to help each other and support each other to find spiritual meaning in their existence. And as I express it, be anti-capitalist and proto-socialist and like try to find a way to exist that doesn't derivate from uh, profitability and income, but um, you know, as Carl eloquently put it, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm the Sid Vicious of our era. 
<laughs> this is why you need a mic. He's laughing. It's fucking cool. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah, I don't know, because you bring up a lot of these same themes. Where yeah, and I think for me, if I can just jump in, all of that's true, but I see it as such positives. Mm-hmm. So, like in my world, I have the luxury of dressing a doctor one day. I get to work with somebody who's just retired and getting rid of their clothes. Um, working with people um, after they've had their babies and said, "Okay, who am I now that I'm um, I am still me, but I'm a mother, and and what do I want to look?" And then, uh, you know, a gentleman that says, "You know, I want to look good at work. I need to kind of fit into this specific zone because I'm kind of mid career. I can't look too ostentatious, but I don't want to look like a schmuck either." So while clothing can seem exceptionally vain. And, you know, super materialistic. And there are a lot of truths that the industry really needs to look at, whether that's their environmental impact, the rate of consumerism, all of that. But I think how I wrap my head around it or the joy that I get out of my work is when it's working for somebody, it's right. Like, it's just the thing. And that's that's what it's all about to me. So what it is for you is going to be different than what it is for somebody else. And you're going to feel it. You're going to love it, and then you're going to go out into the world and live it. You're going to have that confidence. So your values can be expressed by making different consumer choices and keeping in mind, like, not buying is a choice and buying is a choice and how you do that. Those are all choices. You know, throwing your hands up and saying clothes don't matter, that is a choice. That is an expression. So I just want to make sure that that's aligned with who you really are as a person, right? I was going to say I have two thoughts on it, but I think they're going to end up being the same question. So the one idea is the uh, philosophical idea of the value of appearance. But the other one was about the process in which you take your clients uh, through to find, you know, a theme or an outfit. But I suspect those are the two same things, two sides of the same coin. So I don't know if there's a direction that maybe works better for you. I mean, is there, would you rather kind of start off with talking about, let's say, you know, you, I hire you or, or, Kyle hires you. So the process you might take specifically with a client um, or, you know, philosophically, the value of any of this appearance stuff in general, whether it plays yeah, into ego, self-confidence, or if it's a cultural thing, if there's a gender thing, if, you know, whatever it is, sexuality. Uh, it's it's, it's all of those. Of things. course. It's all of those things. So it's all of those things. And it's like, it's, it's challenging to navigate because the the opposite side of the awesomeness of having all of these choices. So um, obviously, um, someone like you, you I think you've expressed that you're a uniform dresser. That's how we'd call it. So you have same types of shirts, one pair of jeans, couple pair of jeans, one jean, one pair of jeans. So for you, you get up and you wear the same outfit every single day. So that's something that we would call uniform dressing. Whereas if I can. Your, your partner, of course, she does work with the KonMari method. So I would assume that her, um, her thing would kind of be more capsule, a very, very specific, small amount of pieces that work. And then um, the choices that you make as parents for your child align with that too. Like I'm sure you guys meet somewhere in the middle or maybe you're a little bit more YOLO about it because he's a child. You no, know? I, I, think, I think you're right in intent. Uh, so I, I'm not going to disagree with you in principle or your ability to read it. It's just uh, Emerson's a prima donna. So we do try a capsule, like, you know, with yeah. Alan in charge of a lot but of But he's growing. Stuff. But yeah, he he's grows. A growing and little then, critter. And then he's got opinions about 
you know, sure. how he feels one day and what he's going to wear in the other day. So he, he's not like his papa at all in that sense. Uh, he cares a lot. So yeah. then maybe he's, he's, um, <laughs> finding a way to express himself yes. through his clothing choices yes, and right. through his vanity, call it choices. Wow. And for me, it doesn't have to be, it's, it's not a bad thing if it's genuine. Mm. So in the same way that you being like super gussied up and slicked out, that would be disingenuous. Maybe not letting your little boy figure out what he likes and what he doesn't like and putting him in this uniform or something that, that would feel limiting too. Yeah, there's a tension there too. Yeah. So, so because of that, because we have all of these choices and we're just talking clothes, when you still have your jobs, you have to feed your family. You're trying to like see your extended family, have a social life, probably be connected with your partner romantically. There's a lot going on. So to get somebody to the point of where they want to be more conscious about their clothing, to even just take a minute and go, oh, I can be more deliberate about this. That's when I'm interested in working with somebody because no different than, you know, maybe wanting to get in shape or something. You might have a trigger moment, whether that's, you know, uh, a blood pressure test or something, or perhaps somebody in your family that you're genetically disposed to. It kind of has your moment. I think that there's a moment for people that realize, oh, clothing is a tool. Clothing is a tool for me. And I'd really like to sharpen my skills on doing that. So that's when I can really help is come in, learn about what you do in the day. What do you do in the evenings? What do you do for play? What does your month, week, days, year look like? What are you, what are you going to have in those days? And things like honesty, like do you have a specified amount of space in your home for your clothes? Do you want to keep that defined? Do you have a budget for your clothes? Are there any ethical considerations? Like are there some brands, like for instance, all of this ridiculous racism that we're seeing in high fashion, um, Gucci's blackface thing and Dolce & Gabbana Dolce slamming China. the Chinese community yes. while they're about to have a show. Bit they lost like it's 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 unacceptable is what it is but as a consumer when you see that Gucci bag walking down the street are you going to buy into that or are you going to maybe take your hard-earned dollars and spend that somewhere else so how are you going to align your ethics with something else so some other people you know if they're budget conscious or they're they're kind of worried about the impact on the world maybe you're only buying secondhand or maybe you're only buying fabrics that we know can break down and be compostable. So, you know, synthetics for the most part don't. Cotton is a huge water water absorber. And then there's things like where, where's your stance on leathers and furs and other animal products. And it's going to be different for every person. But, oh, my goodness, if people would just think about that for a minute and figure out kind of what turns them on and off that's when I can do some really, really fun work with that person, getting them closer aligned to their goals and getting them a wardrobe that works really, really hard for them. You know, it's interesting uh, reflecting, listening to you, kind of like you talking about the gateway of being interested in fashion, but working in marketing that somehow this all coming together. Like Helen and I, yeah, we're people that have been thinking about this shit even when we were young you know like yeah we did helen did this big no waste thing we were vegan we tried all these different experiments sure um, so like currently i am a uniform dresser but uh i'm no sweatshops 
Um, I tried, like, the synthetics is a different thing. I mean, some of them, I do wear some synthetics, but uh, I watched one of those documentaries, and I think it was an image of, like, a woman. I mean, never mind the stories of the Bangladesh factory collapse yeah. and all that kind of stuff, but that there's an image of this woman on a sewing machine with her, like, fuck, six-month-old, like, underneath the table, and I'm just like, I can't fucking buy clothes that are made for i mean you know the irony of that with the global economy is does that mean she starves to death if i stop buying right you know i won't name any names you know h&m but like you know stuff like that's made you know in synthetic places so that you can buy a t-shirt for five bucks i don't know like the true economic scale but at least for my part the shirts typically have come from yeah jericho who allegedly makes their stuff in toronto and Levi's apparently um, has been certified, et cetera, et cetera. Mech only buys this, you know. Uh, but we did stuff like when we were vegan, synthetic boots and stuff, but, but they kind of sucked. So we went back to leather. And they're like, we, we've played with that. But we have been people that have always spent a lot of mental energy thinking about those things. That's wonderful. Well, that's interesting. In the same way that you would think about that, you know, now we have got such high, like food awareness, right? Like, yes. what are you putting in your body? And some of those similar choices... They don't have to be the same as your neighbors, no. but if they're, if you and your family can get on the same page or like you said, like go on an experimentation run, awesome. Awesome. You're getting closer to figuring something out and you're not just, you know, buying for the sake of buying. You're, you're just taking just that extra beat to think about things and how, you know, in the super capitalist Western world, money talks. So if you don't show those brands, your eyeballs, you don't give them clicks, you don't talk about them with your friends you don't buy those things and the, the biggest thing is don't buy don't buy stop it with your money that's great because you know what that does that gives you money to invest in companies that you really really believe in mm. right like levi's jeans they've been around for 120 years there's such a beautiful story there that you can actually trace back or if you're buying from somebody local local artisan you know that they're actually making that good so you're helping out somebody right here in Calgary and you know the story behind it. I think that's really powerful. I think that's really special that you guys are doing that. The uh, totalitarian, to totalitarian dictator uh, Kyle has given me a sign that we have only five minutes left. <gasps> oh my gosh. I've always thought about this moment like an improv. The red light's on, yeah. right? The red light's on. Yeah. We're just about to get into this huge philosophical discussion and maybe solve the world's problem. But no, Kyle said it's done. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, are there is there any kind of unique, special stuff that you want to throw at the mic, uh, either professionally, personally, or anything conclusive manner? <laughs> conclusive manner. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to say thanks. No. Well, thanks for having this conversation. Thank you for coming. And having a conversation with me. Yeah, and I think that's really just it is I, I, I was reading this thing and I can't remember who the quote is, but like Mark Twain, right, Kyle? No. <laughs> I know which one you're trying to bait me with. Nope. No, uh, right, nope, go, not go, go, going go. there. No, sorry, sorry. Um, but uh that's funny. The coldest summer I ever had was in coldest winter I ever had was in San Francisco. That one? No, it's not. <laughs> but there was a thing that, you know, thoughts become behaviors and behaviors become actions. Before you have a thought, you probably have to have a conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if you could just think about it. And at the end of the day, if you get rid of, you know, all of the consumer behavior and conscious things, like, I want you to walk out of the house feeling good. I want you to feel good. And clothes can do that for you. Clothes do. They do that for you. 
It's a tool, just like anything else. Why wouldn't you use it? It's working really good when you have a little bit of a bounce in your step and you have a little bit of glow and maybe you get a compliment. That's not the point. You feel good. And if you feel good, you're probably going to do better in your day. You're probably going to be kinder to your spouse. You're probably going to be encouraging of somebody else chasing what they're trying to do. So it's my little way of adding just a little bit of sparkle, a little bit of goodness glitter into this, this world. And a little bit of color goes a long way. I have a closing anecdote. Number one, just to piss Kyle off, because the longer we go on five minutes, the better. Do we get the Oscar music? I he doesn't have any music. He doesn't <gasps> have a mic. It's his failure, da, really. I mean, da, he can gesture da, all he wants da, through the glass, but, da. you know, the reality what is... What do you think your closing music would be? Um, I don't know. Did you know that Rage Against the Machine was a boy band? They were assembled by a recording agency? So maybe Good. Rage. Yeah. Good. <laughs> um, so... Uh, Those who rage together stay together. <laughs> I... This year, I just, or uh, late last year, I decided to go with a second pair of jeans. <gasps> Jeez, who am I? Well, so, you, you will have to replace them at some point. Well, I, that's why Helen what hates is that I only replace them when things start sticking out. And uh, it's never when the first When body parts thing. come yeah. out of places they should. Yeah, if I had a larger penis, I would wait for the penis, but uh, that would take forever. So I, uh, I went with uh, these Levi's, and then I bought a pair of black tight Levi's. What numbers? Uh, I don't remember. Do you know the numbers? No. Oh, they're all numbered. That's I know. the genius um, of them. Well, I'll have a different anecdote about that. We'll talk okay. Levi's and I, yeah. I mean, I love them. But, I'm a stand for Levi's. Um, but, uh, you know, my recent medical issues, uh, they start off with me thinking I was fainting in the washroom. Uh, and both times that that happened, I was wearing the tighter black jeans. Uh, so oh, they've interesting. Been, so they've been donated because I thought uh, the tight jeans were making me faint while I was taking a shit. Yeah, as it turns out, I just get seizures, so fuck me. But uh, I'm back to one jean now. Back to one jean. I thought two jeans. Oh, those to replace. No, the black ones I've donated because uh, they didn't make me feel good. Well, yeah, and even if, so maybe they aren't cutting circulation off or or whatever, you you nailed it. It may be, like, they may be awesome, but they're just not awesome for you. So, and you donated them. Uh, Yeah. Good. Yeah. I mean, they're pretty much brand new. Somebody else will be skinny enough to fit in them. Maybe... Matt Mort. Hmm. Well, there is there is a market for 100% cotton Levi jeans. Hmm. You can do wonderful things with them. Interesting. Okay. Let's quit because I think Kyle's getting tired of
Media Lab YYC, we help you share your stories with the public. Video, audio, business, personal, let us help you take your idea to the finish line. The music you've been hearing on Perspectives YYC's podcast is a track called Gracious Host. It's graciously given to us by Thomas Thomas Band. They have a debut EP under the name Thomas Thomas out on Spotify. Six tracks. Great listening, local talent. Check them out. Give them a play. Give them subscribe. Give me your support. Thank you, Thomas Thomas, for setting the tone for this year's Perspectives YYC podcast.